You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. You can't tell me why you did a secret. Maybe you should keep it. I should have known. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm your host, Blake Smith. Together with Ben Radford, Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, blogger, linguist, and now a host of CFI's Point of Inquiry, and operating with the valued support of Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society, we examine monsters under the cold light of science. Today, our guest is author Greg Long. Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot, is built from hours of interviews with surviving contemporaries of Roger Patterson, the filmmaker who shot the influential Patterson-Gimlin footage. For many people, this film remains the best evidence that Bigfoot is real. However, Long's research uncovered a side of Patterson most people have never heard of before, and it isn't pretty. While there's no doubt that Patterson was a gifted craftsman and a charismatic, entertaining fellow, Long, through interviews with many people who did business with Patterson and knew him well, describes a man who was unreliable and dishonest, a man who didn't pay his bills, yet made a lot of money off of Bigfoot, a man with the skills, motive, and connections to make a film that would make him and Bigfoot famous. If you're at all interested in the subject of Bigfoot, you should read Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot. Links to it are in our show notes. A lot of our listeners have watched Bigfoot documentaries, seen the Patterson film a thousand times, and even heard the revelations from Long's books. And maybe... You've read the dismissals by Bigfooters of Long's findings. I hope, after listening to his interview, you'll take the time to look at his book, which is full of corroborating evidence. In case you've never heard of the Patterson-Gimlin film, or have forgotten, 
It is either the best photographic evidence of Bigfoot or it is a hoax. Filmed in 1967 by Roger Patterson and his friend Bob Gimlin, it's divided the world into believers and skeptics for more than 40 years. The players in our story follow. Roger Patterson, according to Long, the mastermind of the film. Bob Gimlin, Patterson's friend and companion on the day of the filming. Patty Patterson, Roger's widow. Al D. Atley, Roger's wealthy brother-in-law. Bob Hieronymus, the man who Greg Long believes wore the Bigfoot suit. Philip Morris, the man Long believes made the suit. Our story in today's interview opens as Greg Long explains the story of how the film was allegedly created according to both Patterson and Gimlin. Monster Dog. Roger Patterson, uh, being uh, passionate about Bigfoot, uh, figured out in his own mind that he could probably uh, photograph a Bigfoot in Bluff Creek. Now, this is where there, there were sightings in the late 50s. It was a hotbed of sightings at that time, and tracks being seen there in the Bluff Creek area, primarily along a, a logging road that was being built. So he and Bob Gimlin, who was a uh, local, um, went down to Bluff Creek. Bob Gimlin volunteered his truck. Uh, to uh, hook uh, a trailer with horses to it, and they took a lot of uh, food and um, their, this camera that, that Patterson had bought, or rented rather, and they drove down to Bluff Creek. And this was sometime around mid uh, mid October of 1967, and so the story goes that on, on October 20th, 1967, that was a Friday, uh, sometime after noon or one o'clock or two o'clock or three o'clock, it depends upon the stories you read. Um, they were both riding along the creek, Bluff Creek, and they came around the fallen uh, uh, tree that had been there since a flood, which occurred three years earlier in, in 1964. And they came around this tree, and Patterson's horse began to um, uh, whinny and uh, shy and was apparently picking up the scent of something because when they came around it, uh, Patterson says he saw this hairy Bigfoot creature that was kneeling down and attempting to scoop fish out of the out, out of the creek. Um, from there, the horse bucked. Patterson was thrown off. He grabbed his camera. Uh, he started filming this Bigfoot on the run and, because it was now walking away quickly, but but somewhat leisurely. It, it wasn't frightened of Patterson or Gimlin, and Gimlin's sat on his horse and watched this creature. He had a rifle. He could have shot the creature, but he didn't. And the Bigfoot uh, is filmed for about 60 seconds, and it sort of vanishes behind some trees, and it's gone. After that, Gimlin uh, has stated that he uh, followed on horseback after the initial shock to try to find the creature. All he could find was tracks that led down the road further and went up into some brush and apparently up a hill or something, something like that. Uh, then they went back and they uh, saw the tracks that the creature left, and they they they, they poured plaster of Paris on them and let them set up, and then they took those out of the ground and got in their truck and went into Willow Creek, which uh, is about oh 20 miles, I think 20 or 25 miles uh, south of Bluff Creek, and that's a small town. And uh, there, Patterson contacted a, a hardware store owner. And with excitement, uh, because he had met him before and told him about his interest, with excitement he told him, hey, we, we actually filmed this uh, this critter. And uh, the hardware store owner came out and, and listened to Patterson and Gimlin, interestingly, according to uh, his own account, the hardware owner's account, was kind of standoffish and didn't say anything. <laughs> he, he didn't want to talk about it. 
from there, they um, managed to get an interview with a, with a paper, and Patterson gave his story in brief, and Gimlin talked about the odor that the creatures seemed to emit because Bigfoot has this, this sour odor to it. The rest of the story is is that Patterson took the film and found a pilot, and the pilot flew the film, undeveloped, the canister, up to Yakima, where Al Diatley, Patterson's brother-in-law, picked it up. And then from there, it kind of gets real fuzzy as to what Al Diatley did with that film and where he took it to have it developed because he just doesn't remember. And I've interviewed Al Diatley about that. That's the basic storyline of what Patterson and Gimlin said. It was purely accidental. It was a shot of a lifetime. They managed to get it on film, even though it's shaky, but it's in color. And uh, there you have it. It's all the evidence you need, right? What more do you want? <laughs> I mean, we don't need a we don't need a Bigfoot carcass, and we don't need a live one. We just need the film. That's good enough. Except for your research, which of course uncovered the unlikelihood that there was any way the film could have been developed at the time they said. All the discrepancies in the timing of, of the events, the rainstorm that came in that should have washed the prints away. It, it, you do quite a number on that story. And when all is said and done, you come down to what Renee DeHinden said. Well, we know it was shot in the autumn, maybe, you know, <laughs> or not. So. Yeah, because of the, the color of the trees. You know, one thing I'm going to do eventually is uh, because I'm going to be retiring soon. At, uh, and, and that's going to allow me to tie some loose ends on this case. I'm going to go out to Northern California and back into the universities down there and look at the history of the weather patterns. And uh, there may be stories about whether there was an early fall or what have you and, and try to find out when, when the trees down there turn uh, gold and red and yellow, you know, um, and, and, and see if that is just a big uh, hullabaloo about, well, you know, it had to be, uh, October 20th, when Patterson said because it was earlier, the trees were still green. So, but no one's done that, so that's that's one thing I'm going to do. Well, I thought it was interesting that you talked to Byrne, uh, Peter Byrne, the uh, uh, other, uh, one of the other uh, senior elder Bigfooters, and he said that he had talked to all of the people who could have potentially flown the film out and to the bus people who could have busted out and looked at the logbooks, and all of them agreed that it was the weather was too horrible, it was too rainy for them to have taken any private planes out and that the post office would have been closed at the time when it was claimed. What? Okay, so all that aside, so let's assume for a moment that that, that means that that part of the story is not true, which I think is what that means. Uh, why were they so concerned with that timing? Well, I mean, why, why did they need the film to be rushed if they're just going to go watch it in his brother-in-law's basement? I don't understand that. Well, the way that I read that, and uh, I, I think I implied it in the book, I if you leave behind or offer critics or newspaper people, um, journalists and others, a curiosity seekers, if you if you leave them evidence of the film invoice and names of people that you've dealt with to develop it or people who flew it out or, you know, the who, what, where, when, and how of the development part of it, and it turns out that it was developed before, October 21st, which would be the day after the shooting, you got a real problem. So what you want to do if you're going to hoax something like this is you set it all up real carefully, and this is my theory, is you don't shoot it on October the 20th, 1967, you shoot it all earlier. 
that gives you plenty of time to be able to get the film carefully developed. Uh, it would not be at the hands of Roger Patterson because if uh, the film was proved to be a hoax and they pinned it on Roger, that's bad. So let's have someone a third party deal with it. And that's where Al Alley comes in because Al Alley was funding Patterson's Bigfoot interests, and he helped fund this trip down to Bluff Creek, as it turns out. So what you want to do is you, you, you hoax it in advance, you get it developed, and then you stage your sighting on Friday the 20th, get the word out quickly, which Patterson did, rush back to Yakima and tell him to come to Al Alley's basement on Sunday. That would be about 48 hours later and just get them all involved in the excitement of looking at this uh, this film, this first-of-a-kind film. And developing that passion and interest is a good way, of course, to spread the word about the film. And it also immediately is a launching pad for getting this thing out into the public. And so it was about a week later that Patterson had this up in Canada, and I'm sure that's through John Green's help, to have scientists uh, associated with a museum up there take a look at it, and so you don't want the details to get in the way of the fact, right? <laughs> so that's the way I read this hoax is occurring. And uh, since nobody has the original film, which is interesting, which may show on the leader of the film, and that's that part of the film beginning, Kodak uh, told me that there would be a stamp on there that would say where it was filmed, and it might even say the month and year that it was filmed. But we don't have the original film. But I mean, why why don't we have the original film? I mean, if this is this is this is considered to be the best evidence for Bigfoot, why yeah, where, that, where did it go? Yeah, I've always asked myself, why why would this world-renowned film, this uh, first time uh, in and in, in since the never repeated filming of a Bigfoot, why would Roger Patterson not reveal where the original film is? Did he sell it? Who did he sell it to? Surely someone in the Bigfoot community would track that out and found out who bought it. Nobody seems to know. Now, now Peter Byrne, who we talked about earlier, um, he tried to really track it down. And uh, it seemed to be, from what he was saying, that it actually may reside somewhere in a vault in Los Angeles someplace, which would make sense since um, that's a good place to make movies. But uh, he's never been able to find it. Uh, anyone specifically who can tell him what vault it's in, and, of course, this could be just another myth. But the fact of the matter is is that, you know, it's just like uh, everyone watches crime shows on television. I'm a big fan of forensic, uh, you know, crime shows. And forensics is evidence. I mean, you have either the gun or the weapon or the body. And in lieu of the body, you can prove um, the guilt of people through strong circumstantial evidence by looking at records, phone calls, Sometimes how far a person drove in his car, if his credit card says you put gas in it. I, mean, I could go on. You're probably all familiar with these sorts of things. But for, forensically, there is no original film to look at to try to put that issue to rest. That's a huge flaw in this. Number two, there's no records whatsoever as to where it was developed, who developed it, and when it was developed. And all we have now are copies of the original. And I've come across numbers such as seven or eight copies exist among the hands of various people in the Bigfoot community. But the original is just gone. It's either it's either been destroyed or exists somewhere and someone's laughing about it. Yeah, there was a, a National Geographics where uh, they said they were working with the first-generation copy once removed that Patty Patterson has. Yeah, there were, there were some copies made uh, of the film. The original film, but like you said, that's a copy, right? 
So yeah, it, it, it's, just, it's a copy. And the reason for the original is simply again, if there's any information on the leader of the film, mm-hmm. whether there's something uh, that's in the canister that says where it was developed, well, who knows what would be. But uh, I just find it really interesting that this, this original film was gone. I mean, uh, I don't get it. Unless, as you say, the leader on the film shows that the story is not true. Unless so. there's some the reason why they don't want it to be found. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, other issues, too, that I didn't put in my book, is there's just too much detail, is that there's statements in lots of these newsletters that Bigfooters write that the original film was uh, had other things on it, and these things were cut off, and it could be that... Uh, a little portion of the Bigfoot film, as we see it today on television, had something uh, shot earlier that was spliced. And who knows? You mean, like the <laughs> who knows 20... where all the pieces are? <laughs> like <laughs> they've all been scattered winds. Twenty-three takes of walking back and forth across. <laughs> or, or who knows? Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Bob and uh, Roger filmed like a unicorn or a dragon or something. I didn't even think about that bit. <laughs> okay, I, that's a great lead-in, though. So, it, because one of the questions I had after reading your book, it sounded like Patterson was really trying to make a movie, movie like a motion picture, a documentary or a pseudo documentary or something about Bigfoot. I mean, I've seen the photos with his friends lined up, and uh, I think Gimlin dressed as a Native American. And what happened? I mean, it seemed like that idea was clearly in the works, and then the next thing we know. Just this tiny little bit of film, this almost a minute of film becomes the whole thing. Yeah, the story behind uh, that. There's another story behind the Bigfoot film, and that is that Patterson was trying to make a movie, and uh, it's hard to say what was it. Was it a um, dramatized, uh, a, a fictional account of hunting for a Bigfoot, or was it supposed to be a documentary of how to hunt for a Bigfoot, or what was it? But he managed to get. I'm not sure because. <laughs> It's the kind of thing that you could do in your own local community is you get your buddies together, your 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 beer drinking buddies, and you decide let's 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 do something fun. I'll get myself a camera and you guys act like you're Bigfoot hunters, and you have horses anyway, and you look in your cowboys, and uh, hey Gimlin, why don't you look like an, uh, a Native American, an Indian tracker? We can get you a wig and some feathers, and what we'll do is uh, we'll just uh, we'll take. Uh, uh, film clips of you guys on horseback going up and down slopes and through rugged territory right here behind my house, Patterson's house, and uh, we'll come up with some kind of narrative, and uh, maybe I'll use my illustrations from my book, and we'll just put together a movie, and uh, I'll sell it to Hollywood, and uh, I'll make a million dollars, and then I'll split uh, you know, the profits. Oh, he was, he was trying that. And he was doing that, interestingly, during this period of time that I've determined between when his book came out, which was the fall of 66, and October of 67 when he shot the Bigfoot film in Bluff Creek. So there's a third project that was going on. And um, bits and pieces of that you'll occasionally see on some of these Bigfoot documentaries. It's really kind of like fodder to get you to feel like... Um, Patterson had a bunch of Bigfoot uh, hunters with him, and you know this was a guy who did a lot of truck stuff into the forest, and he looked at Bigfoot and so forth. Like it's an operation going on. But he was trying that. But um, some of the people I've interviewed uh, <laughs> told me stories about how he would pretend that he was around a campfire out in the woods by just sitting in his backyard and putting some uh, uh, some logs together in a circle and then uh, spraying them with. Uh, 
white air fluid or, or kerosene or something and lighting it on fire. And then the guys, his fellow cowboy friends would sit around and, uh, you know, look like they had done a hard day's work at Bigfoot hunting and now they were around the campfire at night. So he was staging all that and preparing to sell this movie to Hollywood. And, in fact, he did take down this thing uh, and tried to sell it to Hollywood. That's before the Bigfoot film was shot. And uh, no one was interested. The common thing would be, you know, something, if we had a Bigfoot to put in, then people would buy it. Ah, let's have a hoax film. We'll take it down on Bluff Creek. That's the Bigfoot part of it. And that would make, I mean, it's obviously something you can easily infer by looking at patterns, movements at that time, and the products that he was attempting or, or actually making. Greg, to the best of your knowledge, did Patterson ever make any money out of this hoax? Yeah, it, it's pretty obvious to me that he was attempting to make money. Um, he needed investors. Uh, Aldi Adley was his brother-in-law, I might have mentioned him earlier, who was a fairly wealthy uh, businessman in Yakima. Uh, he was married to one of Patterson's sisters. So he leaned upon him for handouts and money here and there. He, was making, he wasn't just making this movie for the fun of it. He was actually going to sell it to make money on it. But he was having difficulty, as I said, with the documentary and trying to sell that. Eventually, he makes money off the Bigfoot film. His brother-in-law is the sort of manager of that particular operation because he helped fund the editing of the Bigfoot film and other, on these other pieces that Patterson was shooting behind his house. Uh, but what was needed was more, and so eventually uh, the British Broadcasting Company got involved and bought some of this footage from Patterson to put together their own documentary. A lot of this is detailed in the book. It gets rather complicated. But uh, the idea was to make money. It's, it's obvious it was because ultimately uh, Aldi Atley, who managed uh, an operation of showing this movie around the Northwest and then the Midwest, stated in an interview with me that they had made about $200,000, which, which in 1967 dollars would be a, a great deal of money. Wow. So uh, money was the motivation. Again, Patterson was poor. He didn't want to work. He wanted to make he wanted to make an easy buck. And so that that's my theory. That's what he set out to do, and he succeeded in doing it. And um, so, in terms of you know the the film itself, obviously, um, you know it's either it's either a hoax or it's an actual Bigfoot. I mean, there's 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 not too many things that, it, you know, it's not mistakenly, it's, you know, whatever it is can't be mistaken for a bear. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty self-evidently one or the other. And, of course, many people believe that it's a, it's a man in a, in a costume. And apparently you claim in the book that you, you found the man that wore the costume. Can you tell us about that? Sure. The man who claimed to wear the Bigfoot suit is named Bob Hieronymus. Bob Hieronymus lives in the Yakima. And, and interestingly, he lives on the same street that Bob Gimlin lives on. Bob Gimlin, as I said, was with Patterson on that day um, filming this authentic Bigfoot, right? Uh, so I think that's kind of humorous. Uh, <laughs> but Bob Hieronymus um, was, and still is, uh, a large man. Now, not extremely large by uh, NBA standards, but uh, he was over six feet tall, probably six and a quarter inches, almost six and a half inches tall, six foot and a half inches tall, and uh, quite muscular. 
and he worked on uh, on ranches, worked for a, a milk farm, uh, loading and unloading 50-gallon drums of milk, and was just a naturally husky young man who was very healthy. And um, Patterson found out about Bob Hieronymus and thought, now this guy is big enough where he could look like a Bigfoot. And so he sent Bob Gimlin to talk to Bob Hieronymus. And Gimlin put it quite simply, if you wear this Bigfoot suit, Patterson will give you $1,000. And Bob Hieronymus, who uh, was 26 at the time, thought that's a hell of a lot of money. All i got to do is wear a suit. Huh? Okay, well, I'll do it. So Hieronymus tells the story. He went out there and met Patterson, and on a handshake agreed to wear this costume. He went back later, and Patterson brought out of this shed behind his house this Bigfoot costume. And Hieronymus put it on, and it fit well, and he pranced around under the direction of Patterson and acted like a, like a walking ape-like creature. Patterson thought it was great. So uh, Hieronymus, the story is, is that he went down there in his mother's car, and he was told where to meet Patterson and Gimlin. He went down there, met them. They went up to a camp uh, where they uh, ate something and then slept. Uh, Hieronymus slept actually in the deck of this horse trailer that Gimlin had pulled by in his trunk. And in the morning, they uh, took his costume and a sack that was thrown over the back of Gilman's horse, and uh, they went up to this site and filmed the Bigfoot. And Hieronymus hasn't backed down on this story. Um, he went to an attorney when he found out that um, I had some interest in his name because I started looking into this uh, way back in 1998, in the fall of 1998. Uh, he, had a, he had a lie detector test um, um, done by a retired uh, Yakima County Sheriff. He passed it. Uh, the attorney represented him because it's a question of is this fraud or not? Is Hieronymus going to find himself in trouble? Mm -hmm. uh, he hasn't been in trouble. He's since passed another lie detector exam. He's been on television numerous times and I repeated the same story. I've checked him out. I've checked out people around him. and he hasn't been arrested for anything. He's had um, a succession of different jobs that are consistently the same thing, either in uh, cattle ranching, managing cattle ranches, or uh, before he retired, he worked for the Pepsi bottling company there in Yakima. And uh, I met his wife, and they're both stable people. Uh, he has a family of two grown girls. He lives right on the street with Jimlin. <laughs> He's retired. He likes to fish. He's an everyday guy, and... Um, he, he told me it's time since people keep talking about this film. I never got anything for it. Patterson never paid me. I'm just going to tell the truth. I'd like to get this thing off my chest tell the truth about it. I'm sick and tired of watching his documentaries on Bigfoot and everyone's saying it's real because it was actually me. <laughs> so, no, he's, he's in the book, and um, I stand by his word. I can only base it on the fact that I've met him many, many times. I've interviewed him. I've gone over what I've asked him and his answers. I've talked to people who know him, and I've checked his background, and he's just sort of a down-to-earth man who was the right size, big enough, and uh, fell into this uh, this scheme where he could make a quick buck. That's pretty simply and what, what just, it's all about. 
as you well know, a lie detector test doesn't mean anything. It's not admissible in courts. Um, and, you know, does he have any witnesses or any other evidence that he, he could bring forth to it, or is it just basically his word? Uh, he doesn't He doesn't have a Bigfoot suit. He doesn't have any diary entries. He doesn't have any journal entries. He doesn't have any photographs. No, he doesn't have state forensics. He doesn't have any forensic evidence that he was the man in the suit. Um, it's really his word that we have to stand on. Uh, it'd be nice to have the Bigfoot suit. I asked Patty Patterson on the phone when I tried to interview her several times uh, that I'd like to see that suit because I thought it was in her house, and she immediately slammed the phone down. Uh, what what does Bob mean? I don't know. I was saying, <laughs> what does Bob Gimlin say? Oh, Bob, Bob Gimlin uh, Bob Gilman has absolutely no evidence that uh, he was down there. He doesn't have any photographs or nothing. Um, Bob Gimlin considers Bob Ronops a liar. Bob Gimlin is a very popular figure because now he's an old man in his mid-70s, and the, the fresh crop, the new generation of Bigfooters, thinks he's this great mythic romantic figure. And so what they do is they pay him to speak at different uh, meetings they have, and they kind of fly him around here and there, and so he makes money off of that, and uh, he has a lot of fans. And uh, uh, interestingly, Gimlin... Um, retained a lawyer uh, in, in Minnesota, and through this lawyer uh, threatened to sue uh, Prometheus Books and myself, and nothing came of it. But Gimlin, I would have thought, could have sued me or sued Bob Aronimus. Uh That's never happened. Um, so really what it is is you've got two camps right now. You've got the big three who just absolutely will never, ever give up their belief that it's uh, a real Bigfoot. Uh Bob Gimlin supports their um, their belief. Patty Patterson's still alive. She makes money off the film. Uh, she has two uh, devices to make copies. One's for Euro- European um, formats, and one of them is for U.S. formats, and her lawyer will field any inquiries. Her lawyer will make deals, and she'll sell the film rights. Uh, one-time rights for whatever for anywhere from ten thousand, fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. She's made a lot of money off of it, and so Gimlin, you know, he makes money off of it and decides, you know, why he admit that he's a liar. Uh, my personal belief is that he is. Uh, Patty, Patty Patterson likes to make the money. Now, on the other hand, you've got a local Bob Hieronymus who fits the bill, and uh, yes, lie detector tests. Uh, they are used by the police sometimes effectively to help them at least decide whether a suspect ought to be followed further uh, or discounted. But uh, neither side really has uh, the definitive proof. But on the other hand, I can tell you that no Bigfoot uh, hunter has ever provided a live or dead Bigfoot, and I kind of doubt that they ever will. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. It sounds like Bob probably wore the suit at least twice. Once at, at Gimlin's house, I mean Patterson's house... Uh, to practice the walk with Patterson's direction, and then once when they actually shot the footage for the the film. Um, right. So, it, did he say he wore it any more than that? It was just the two times that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's just two times that he, that he wore it. I only ask that because one of the discrepancies between um, what Bob said about the suit and what the uh, uh, suit maker said about the suit. Bob thought that uh, – well, actually, I went back and reread this because what Bob says is not that he thought the suit was made of horse hair, but that that Patterson told him it was made of horse hair, right, the suit maker. And Philip Morris says it's the, the suit is the suit that he made, but that, that Patterson has done something, replaced the mask with something different. Um, and the reason right. I ask that is because, you know, Patterson, the biggest problem I think people have had that I've seen on, in, in discussion groups is why is the description of the suit up close different than Philip Morris's description? What, what, have, you, have you thought about that at all, or what, what were your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I have thought about that. And um, uh, Philip Morris, um, uh, I, I don't have any problem with his story that Roger Patterson called him. He remembers his name. Patterson was uh, in character attempting to get the suit for nothing. Um, and uh, Morris remembers receiving a money order from him. Um, and I don't have any problem with Morris's memory about that. Now, it's true that when you look at the Bigfoot film, it does not look like uh, gorilla suits that have shown in some of Morris's uh, publicity shots. Um, now, the reason for that is is that, uh, and this is admittedly theoretical, I'm basing it upon my own observations of the film and also my conversations with Philip Morris and uh, what Philip Morris has repeated many times, is that a costume maker such as Morris, who was making costumes specifically for uh carnivals at the time and other uh, show industries, which included rodeos, by the way, um, 
he knows his suit when he sees it, I guess you would say. And so when he saw the film and he saw it on television uh, a few weeks after it was shot uh, in October, I believe it was shot in October, but just not on the 20th, um, Philip Morris's immediate reaction was, that's my, that's my suit. No, a person who's not a costume maker doesn't really understand, well, how can he know that so quickly? I take Morris's uh, explanations being he could tell that there were enough features in that costume and with a man inside it that told him, that's my suit. Now, on closer inspection, which he did not do until I contacted him and I showed him uh, still from the movie, he said, that's my suit. But I can see that some things are going on in there, uh, such as... Um, the uh, the face mask doesn't quite look like the mask that is on my suits at the time. It looks like Patterson must have done something. And he gave me some pretty reasonable explanations of what we were looking at, that the hands do look like gloves, that the feet are obviously uh, artificial, um, that sort of the, the, the cutting of the, um, I guess you'd say, or I'll put it this way, so the contours of the suit, um, the way the, the hair on the suit looks in the sunlight and those sorts of things, uh, he drew those conclusions that Patterson did something. Now, I want to throw in something here because it's not strictly the suit, but you got to think about it this way. Um, a costume is a costume until you... A costume comes alive when you put it on. And a gorilla suit, a much more advanced suit, uh, Philip Morris provided for this National Geographic documentary. I watched Hieronymus put this suit on in Hieronymus's living room, and immediately Hieronymus was bigger, both in terms of his weight and his height. And a human buttocks, when you put them in a gorilla suit, expand astronomically. I mean... It was amazing to me how huge Hieronymus became, but it was fitted so a, so a man of his height would fit in it, so it, it, it was loose in a few areas and he needed some tailoring, that sort of thing. But um, I just have to go upon Morris's word that he dealt with a man named Roger Patterson and he saw the film, he knew it was a suit, and he's told this story many years before even I met him on, by, on the phone. I, of course, later I met him in person. And... Uh, he never forgot the story, and he, among costume makers and aficionados of costumes, that uh, they have their own conventions and professional meetings and that sort of thing and, at industry shows, and he would give little talks and, and talk about this film that he was involved in. Um, he never really talked about it more broadly than that because in his industry, he sells suits to all kinds of professional people. David Copperfield, he sold some girl suits to him and many others, and he just thought it was a curious, interesting experience that he had, and then, of course, later, when I met him, he opened up further about it. So um, it, what the Bigfoot community are looking for is they want to have the suit, number one, which we don't have, unless someone is hiding it, and they want to see how the Bigfoot costume, if you will, uh, was derived out of Morris's girl series at the time. Uh, one thing I've talked to Philip Morris about is to be able to take one of those suits 
an older suit and be able to do things with it and have someone wear it. And, uh, for example, if you look at a Bigfoot film, you can see a line at the upper part of the thigh, the right thigh, which is rather curious. And Morris agrees with me that that's probably an indication of these wading boots that were inside the suit. Hieronymus put his legs into these boots. He felt them as wading boots. And that's what you're looking at. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but what the critics want is a one-to-one correspondence. They want either a suit that Morris still has in his possession and he made in 67, look just like the Bigfoot suit, or they want the Bigfoot suit. But I, I heard on a TV interview that that was a torn hamstring, not a rubber boot. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> they, people... yeah, that's right. It, it could be uh, it could be uh, all kinds of things, just just as other things have been found, like. Um, no, I don't want to go into it. Well, right, yeah. The pe- people see a lot you, of you stuff. You can look at it's like Rorschach tests, I guess you'd say. Were you involved in the National Geographic uh, documentary, or did you just watch it on TV? No, I uh, I gave an interview which was not used. Uh, I was really disappointed in how much they used, actually. But I helped coordinate and arrange a lot of the people who were in there. Uh, Bob Hieronymus also helped. Uh, um, find some local friends of his that could play some roles, uh, you know, play Patterson's friends on horseback, hunting for the Bigfoot creature. Uh, things were shot in a local tavern. Um, and so um, that was my involvement in it. I, I thought they were going to devote a lot of time to the whole issue. They ended up in that documentary spending a good 45 minutes on, frankly, a bunch of sort of nonsense. Yeah, I, it, I think it disappointed skeptics and believers, but I, I really wish that the suit they had used had been more like the one that was actually in the, the, the original footage. Yeah, that was rushed together. Frankly, I wasn't supportive of it happening, actually. Uh, and uh, it, it actually was, that suit was, was made during the Halloween costume season. <laughs> and there was a lot of pressure on uh, Philip Morris at that time to run his business as well as try to get a suit for this thing. So... Um, I think the, the the thing to do, and Philip and I have talked about this a lot, is to actually uh, find the different things that would be needed for Patterson to modify a suit and just modify it. And, and I I'm I'm pretty certain it'll look like a Bigfoot suit. But the problem is, though, you know, you're dealing with uh, whatever Patterson had at the time. You're looking at whatever technology that that Morris had at the time. Um, I, my, my assumption is suits back then were not as elaborate as they are today. Um, but there's been a lot of people trying to find this suit and claims that John Chambers, who was involved in the Apes and Planet of the Apes, might have been behind it. He denied it in a nursing home where he was ill and dying. Um, there are rumors. There are, there's all kinds of leads that people track down. It doesn't go anyplace. So it, it's not just me lacking a suit or Bob Aronimus lacking a suit. Uh, nobody has a suit. So we don't we don't have a suit, but we don't have the Bigfoot. So you have to decide, right. <laughs> you know, ultimately is the lack of evidence of a suit, does that counterweigh the lack of evidence of a living or dead Bigfoot? Uh, you have to weigh the character of Roger Patterson versus the character of Bob Aronimus. I mean, there's a, just a lot of different factors you're going to have to weigh if you, when you come to some sort of conclusion. 
So, Greg, your book came out in about 2004. So do you still stand by your findings, or has any new evidence come to light since then? Well, I don't have any new evidence in that. Um, since that came out, uh, I took a, a breather from writing because it was quite a chore writing that while I was working full-time. Um, and uh, I've been researching some other things. Uh, I put aside the Bigfoot um, book, and that I, I did say there's some loose ends of being missed the track down, um, and I intend on doing that <clears throat> in my retirement. But uh, I don't. I haven't found any statements coming over coming out of Yakima from from anyone that's uh, no one's called me up and told me anything about Aronimus that would uh, cause me to uh, disbelieve them. Um, I've attempted many times, um, or but I would say many probably two or three times to interview Bob Gillen. He absolutely refuses, so that's not going to help me very much. Um, I did interview Al Diatli, his brother-in-law, who I concluded knows more than he's saying. Um, but um, I'm standing by the findings, and um, I'm going to go back through, through some loose ends. I did have some people who did not want to be interviewed, who may want to be interviewed now might reveal some things that what that would be surprising. And so it, it sounds like, uh, from what you're saying, that, that, uh, that Bob didn't consider it to be a big a big secret necessarily. It's not like they were sworn to blood oath not to talk about it. It was just sort of an, an open secret, because I, I think you had mentioned that um, that you had called up and someone said, yeah, Bob was in the suit. Everybody knows that, right? Yeah, that's right. The first witness that I called up told me, you know, why don't you come out here and I'll talk to you because I knew who wore the Bigfoot suit. And I thought, you got to be kidding me, you know. But uh, once I went out there and looked at the size of Tempico, and Tempico was just a little town. It's, and they knew Patterson. I mean, he would he would do handstands on the uh, steps of the general store. I mean, uh, he it was just like people know him. It was a very small community at the time, like a fishbowl, and people knew who he was. Yeah, he didn't pay his bills. Uh, he ran around telling big, tall stories. I talked to uh, one of the TV stations out there in which Patterson came to promote Bigfoot on their uh, news hour. And uh, a reporter went out there in the Tampico area and looked all over the place for Bigfoot tracks for Bigfoot and never could find it. I mean, uh, and people who were longtime residents out there I talked to, um, who even predated um, Patterson, living in the same place that I've been out here 50 or 60 years. There's never been a Bigfoot. I've never seen one until Patterson came along. Pseudoscience has a clever way with enough kinds of phraseology that, and the Bigfoot people are good at this, uh, you use enough phraseology out of science and uh, words like um, complex analysis of the film uh, after a while, a person who knows nothing about the subject goes, well, gosh, man, there must be something to this. That has been rehashed over and over and over again. Let me bring, let me bring you back to, to Aronimus. Now, he wasn't the only person to, who claimed to have been in the suit. Did you did you speak to other people who also might have been in the suit? Okay, I lost that part. Other people who... There are several different people, not just Bob Aronimus, who claimed to be in the Bigfoot suit. Did you interview any of them? Well, I don't know where that's coming from because the Bigfoot community, which was originally led by Rene DeHendon and John Green, has been told this story over and over that there's been a lot of people over the years who claim to be the person in Bigfoot suit. I have never heard a name of anybody other than Bob Hieronymus that's ever claimed to be in the Bigfoot suit. This has been told over and over again. I read it in their newsletters. They don't name anybody who's ever claimed to be in the Bigfoot suit. 
there was actually a documentary about four or five years ago. Uh, I think it was associated with Robert Kiviat, who's also associated with the the uh, the Alien Roswell hoax. Oh, okay. And We're talking about it was the Fox special, right? And there was a guy. Yeah, that, I'm sorry, and, Mitt Romney. I, I well, let me step back. I forget about Mitt Romney's uh, uh, cousin. Um, I, his first name escapes me right now. Um, Robert Kiviat did do a special on um, exposing hoaxes, and one of them was the Patterson film. And there was um, a member of the famous Romney family who had uh, worked as an insurance agent selling insurance to um, uh, American National Enterprises, which was a film company out of Utah who produced nature films at the time, which were quite popular. And he uh, uh, claims were uh, made by an ex-American National Enterprises executive that Romney told him over lunch that he, Romney, had worn the Bigfoot suit, and so he was being exposed. And so Romney was um, enticed into an interview and denied it. I left the Romney thing out because it just... The book would have been too large, so I kind of left that on the sidelines. I did interview Romney on the phone. He just basically denied it, said he didn't know why he was accused of wearing a suit, because he never did. So, again, it's his word against uh, this former A&E manager. So you think people are conflating the rumors of people in the suit with the number of people who have actually claimed to be in the suit? Yeah, I think I think a lot of rumors go around about who was, who, who, uh, who was in the suit. Because you want to know who's in the suit, so maybe we'll just make up a name. Oh, someone told me in a bar that he knew another guy who said this guy wore a suit. Well, before you know it, this guy, you know, three steps removed, wore the suit. But none of these so-called people that I can't even name, including Romney, have stepped forward making these accusations, basically, against Bob Gimlin and risking a lawsuit, mm-hmm. which he knew that he was doing. And that's why you got a lawyer to represent him. None of them are, you know, willing to at, at least uh, even, even name L. D. Alley as a recipient of the film. See, Bob Ronneman said that he was given the film canister and was told by Patterson to mail it from Eureka, California, to L. D. Alley by regular mail, and that's what he did. Now, that's different than putting it on a plane. It's just the manner in which the Hiroma story has come to light. And the fact that nobody over there can provide any evidence that Hieronymus is an inveterate liar that has been lying about this for years, that is very convincing to me that he's telling the truth. And, of course, physically he fits the model. I mean, there's all these other things, too, that you have to look at. Did you get the impression that when when Hieronymus hired a lawyer, it was to protect himself from from Patty Patterson? Yes, because I I interviewed him, um, and I invited Hieronymus to come to this motel room where my wife and I were, and he did come over. And one of the first things he said when he came in with his wife was, there's a lot of powerful people in this community, and they're not going to be happy about what I'm going to tell you. And I said, well, I really wouldn't worry about it if it's true. And uh, I had managed to get a phone uh, a phone conversation with Hiram's lawyer before the lawyer decided not to talk to me anymore, and his lawyer told me that uh, there were at least two people in the community that Herodimus was concerned about, and I know who they are. They're Patty Patterson and Al Diadley, okay? So it was clear from um, 
Karanam's statement and his demeanor when he started to tell me he was nervous about telling me. Um, he had never done an interview before. Um, you could tell this was going to take a bit of an effort, but he, he just went through it in detail over and over again. And I said, you know, I'm glad you're coming out and telling the truth now. Um, but he retained that lawyer, and um, I don't know. I don't think he needs to work with his lawyer now because the story's been out and nothing's happened. I mean, no one sued him, um, but, but he, he, he stands by the story. Um, the, the other thing is is that, um, you know, Hieronymus could have told the story early on after he wasn't paid his thousand dollars. But, and I believe Bob, because he's told me over and over again, he comes from a, a, a generation of people, or I guess you might say from a sort of a social, cultural background. You know, you honor a man's word. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just told me I made this agreement with Patterson. I wasn't going to tell anybody about it. And... I decided I just wasn't going to talk about it. It was pretty obvious that I got screwed over, and uh, he just remained silent. But Bob Rano is actually somewhat of a shy person if if you met him, um, and that's what he did. Then he just kind of got fed up over the, you know, finally just there were so many documentaries coming out in 1997, 1998, and I remember one featured Bob Gimlin. That um, and I was over there talking to people, and he found out about it. He just kind of said, "Look, I've had it. You know, this has been too long. I'm sick of hearing about it." <laughs> and but, but, and that's that's already how it all happened. Now Patterson died in in the seventies, right? Yeah, I think it was seventy two. So presumably his promise to presumably his promise to uh, Roger Patterson would would be null and void after seventy two, seventy three. Well, you you got to remember. You know, as I said, when he when I interviewed him, he was concerned about Patty Patterson and Aldi Adley. I see. And um, Bob has never come out and said, you know, I didn't want to tell anyone because I was afraid of those people. But I'm really I'm surmising that's why he didn't. That makes sense. Uh, the community, the Yakima now is a fairly large community. It's like uh, it's probably a hundred thousand people. Uh, the population back then wasn't wasn't very large. I mean, it's like living in a small town. You know, it was a small town. And and Aldi Atley is very wealthy now, and was making a great deal of money then. He he owned a Superior, Superior Asphalt Company, which is a paving company. And um, I went and looked up uh, some things on his on various lawsuits that he was involved in. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think he'd want to get involved with Aldi Atley in a lawsuit because he, he he sued people and people tried to sue him, and he usually won. He'll steamroll you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the Bigfoot in the in the film is is female. That always struck me as as an interesting choice. Um, so in Patterson's book, he had drawn a, a female Bigfoot. Yeah, he had drawn a, big, a female Bigfoot. And there's a story. I, I don't recall the um, name of the so-called witness or storyteller, but he tells a story about going out uh, hiking one day up in the mountains, and very much like Patterson, he stumbles across uh, a gorilla-like creature. This one was, I, th- I think, uh, pulling berries off of a, of a bush or something like that, and uh, the Bigfoot saw him, and it turned, and it had breasts, and it walked away from it. I mean, it's just like Patterson, basically. Um, knowing the way that Patterson thought, I think that would be a nice creative touch, Let's just don't have a let's not have a male bigfoot. Let's have a female bigfoot. 
that'll make it stranger and more, quote, believable. See, if you can make something stranger than usual, and it's not known to science, and you have a so-called credible witness with this excited story, there might be a tendency to believe it. But uh, that story, um, I don't know if it's in Patterson's book or not, but it was floating around at that time. But it was definitely available at that time to anyone who wanted to dig into the subject. Greg, could you provide us with a, a brief version of what you think uh, really happened that day at Bluff Creek? Well, I, I uh, believe Bob Ronneman's story of what happened essentially is, is that uh, three men, Patterson, Gimlin, and Bob Aronimus, with a gorilla suit that had been modified, uh, all three of those gentlemen and the suit, they went up Bluff Creek. They had a place picked up beforehand. Hieronymus, who had agreed to wear the suit for $1,000, got off the back of Gimlin's horse, and he put the suit on before at least twice, and he uh, put it on and walked over to a position where Patterson told him to stand, and uh, basically action, <laughs> and uh, Patterson shouted, or start walking, and uh, it was already determined that he was just going to basically walk away and looked back at the camera. And so he walked away, and Ronald tells me it was one shot. It wasn't practiced over and over again. And I don't see any reason why he would be wrong about that. If, if you see Hieronymus uh, walk, there's definitely something to the arms and how he walks, uh, even though people want to discount that. He, he does walk like the Bigfoot. And he walked and uh, put a suit on him, and he... Uh, According to Hieronymus, he came to a, a big hole in the ground where a tree had been uh, uprooted and left a hole behind where its roots had been growing, and he jumped down on this hole because he was afraid that there was it was hunting season and someone would have seen and shot it. And then Patterson and Gimlin rode over to him and helped him get out of the suit, took it off of him and put it back in the sack, and that was it. It sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? <laughs> But, uh, you know, if you have the right person or the right height and he walks pretty well and that suit looks really great on him and you have a shaky camera, you know, just go for it. Why do a lot of remakes? I mean, look two stage. Just do a raw, you know, unedited live-action camera. Make it as real as you possibly can. And yeah. show that the photographer was, was frightened or excited or he couldn't, he couldn't maintain his poise. He just had to run after it. I was just going to add that. that um, I was just going to add that, that uh, as, you, as you may know, there have been several early claims that uh, that if you look at the locomotion of the of the the Bigfoot or the guy in the suit, that it's it's physically impossible for humans to to duplicate that. Um, although a colleague of ours, Dave Dagling, actually uh, in an article published in Skeptical Inquirer, uh, showed that it was in fact possible. And I think I think by now they've more or less backed off that claim. But that that for a while that was one of the claims that. Humans can't walk that way, and then, well, it turns out they can. Well, and humans, I'm not an expert on walking, whatever you want to call it. And by the way, David, David, it's, it's really excellent. Now, here's an example of scientists actually using science uh, to look at this film. But, uh, you know, humans walk different kinds of ways. I'm at work all the time, and uh, there's a guy there who walks, um, <laughs> amazingly, he walks like Groucho Marx. He actually does. Uh, he's not putting it on. He just happens to have this. Uh, it's kind of comical. He's <laughs> a nice guy, but uh, he walks with long strides, and uh, he's kind of bent over. And you know how uh, Rachel Marx walks. Uh, he walks that way. 
He walks like Groucho and, uh, until you shut up. He talks like Harpo. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, people walk differently. They're different sizes. And, and uh, uh, he's put on weight now, and his bones are creakier, and he's got some arthritis. And he's not going to look exactly the way he did or exactly the way he walked when he was 26 years old because he's aged obviously, but he still has those features. Uh, you know, that, people just walk differently. And when you're asked to walk in a suit like a Bigfoot, he used some imagination. It just came out really well. Well, I think your book, uh, The Making of Bigfoot, does a great job of, of laying out the case that, that, that uh, Patterson put this together, that he was a deceptive person, and that he was a creative person, and that this was well within his capabilities. And, uh, and I enjoyed the book, and I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, presented by Skeptic Magazine. In today's episode, we discuss Greg Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot. Links to Long's book and contact info for our show can be found at skeptic.com and at monstertalk.org. If you enjoy Monster Talk, why not give us a review on iTunes? If you want to talk with other Monster Talk fans, why not check out our forums at skepticforum.com? Theme music for Monster Talk is performed by Peach Stealing Monkeys. The song, Dirty Little Secret, which opened the show, is by the band 54 Seconds. If you're a skeptic and wonder what you could do to make the world a more rational place, why not check out Daniel Loxton's What Do I Do Next? Just Google... Loxton, that's L-O-X-T-O-N, What Do I Do Next? And you'll find more than 100 suggestions for betterizing the world. Thanks, and thanks for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. But yeah, it does have, it does have breaths on it. Philip Morris says it could very well have been just balloons with some sand in them.